Hey, podcast listeners, the Orthodox Center for the Advancement of Biblical Studies is sponsoring its annual biblical symposium at St. Elizabeth Orthodox Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, March 8 to 9, 2019. This year's keynote speaker is Dr. Robert Miller from the Catholic University of America. Meet Father Paul Tarazi and other scholars who will present and discuss papers on biblical exegesis and language. Join Father Mark Bulos and Dr. Richard Benton for a live recording of the Bible's Literature Podcast. Engage with others like you who are committed to biblical studies for all who have ears to hear. Register online at ephesusschool.org. You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Poulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, morning, Father. We have spoken many times, Father Paul, about shepherdism. It's obviously central to your thesis in The Rise of Scripture. We've also talked about the role of David specifically, that David, before he became a king, was a shepherd. And when he was a shepherd, God ensured his success and his well-being. And of course, when David became a king and tried to control things himself, he went from being the shepherd under God's care to the abusive king in opposition to God. But there's this passage in 1 Samuel that I was hoping we could get you to dig in a bit within the context of the importance of David's role, because I also know that David has an eschatological function. But in 1 Samuel 17, verse 40, there's this very interesting verse. And when he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So this will seem like an odd question to people who aren't familiar with biblical studies or this school of biblical studies. Tell us about the smooth stones, Father Paul. What's going on? Uh, why, why, why five smooth stones? Yes. Yeah, it's actually, it's very smooth when you begin with verse 38. It is impressive. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David girded his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he was not used to them. Notice, the authors are just superbly superlative, or superlatively superb, whatever. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I'm not used to them. And David put them off. And only then comes verse 40. And that is really the the twist, the intention. Then he took his staff in his hand as a shepherd and chose five smooth stones from the brook. But again, by now, the hearers know already ahead of time that I'm going to use the Hebrew or they are fed up and they would like if I would speak English. And But it doesn't work like that. Scripture must be heard in the original language 
And this is the duty of the so-called preachers and interpreters and so on, hermeneutics, as though, you know, our God needs a Hermes to help him channel to the people. No, I noticed in the last six, seven years of my pastorate, all my sermons were just explaining the meaning of few original words. And then everything becomes clearer already. Whatever is, is clear. You don't need to explain the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. It's, but when you introduce the people to the original, they see more and better in a more complete way. And I hope my hearers will follow that. and They will see what's going on here. First of all, we have the number five. Anyone by now should guess that it has to do with the Pentateuch, with the Torah. There is no other way. Why five? Number two, we have stones, Aben, and towards the end of Genesis, God is referred to the God of Jacob as the shepherd, RSV alone in all the translations, and RSV again, it's a calamity, you know, it's the rock of Israel. You could see the influence of modern Zionism. It was published in 1952 after the establishment of the State of Israel and the Rock of Masada and so on. No, it's a stone, little stone, a pebble, Aben. That's what God is. And all this is reflected in the story of David that refuses to put on an armor and uses just whatever the shepherd has a sling. But there is more to that in the original. The smooth, in this case, is from a root halak in Hebrew, which is to shave like with a razor. So already we see its importance in two directions. Number one, the stone is not chiseled in a way a statue is. It is just round, smooth, a non-worked stone. And this is the first commandment of the law. You may not represent God as a statue. This is still in the tradition of Islam, where the Muslims go for thousands of kilometers to go just pray around a stone. But that is not chiseled. It is there that God appeared. And that brings to mind immediately the stone on which Joshua wrote the law at the end of the book of Joshua 24. So you chisel the stone only with the words of God. Otherwise, it has to be a stone of remembrance. And you have this also at the beginning of the book of Joshua during the entrance. They took stones from the bottom of the river and they erected a remembrance so that when the people passed, they would. But for the attentive ear, this root, Helik, I think that this is a unique instance of Haluk. It's the only time in the Old Testament where we have this adjective. But then the verb halak and the noun halik are all over the place. It is used profusely to express the allotment. It is as though you shave around a piece of land and you make it an allotment, an inheritance. Please remember that the one who's hearing 1 Samuel 
has already heard the book of Joshua. And this is where the connection is made. You have stones in Joshua, you have stones at the beginning and at the end. You have something that is shaved and it reminds you of the allotment and the strike. I was reading this and I could not believe my eyes. I mean, you sent me the topic to prepare and I saw this. So when you hear it in Hebrew is Hamisha 5, Haluke smooth, Abanim stones, Min from Hanahal. This is amazing because Nahal, and I believe we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, is a brook, a valley with a little bit of water or no water. It's a wadi, we call it. And it's filled with water only when there is a storm or heavy rain. So it's a promise of life, more than life per se, compared to Nahar, the river. Notice how in the Bible, the Euphrates is referred to very often, the great river, just like that by itself, without naming it, and people knew. So the Nahal is something totally different. And and that is the culmination that one of the two words for inheritance, one is Yerusha, the other is Nahala. So in these compact four words, five smooth stones from the brook is amazing. It prepares the hearer to understand that David is realizing what Joshua started. But then, you know, the people after the death of Joshua forgot the Lord. And that's why things did not go well. And then you had the threat of the Philistines and Saul wanted a victory with the same kind of armor. But the author leads you on another path where it is David as shepherd that wins the day and the battle by precisely reenacting, if you like, what Joshua was, that it is through the law. Remember, after he passed, he did not even circumcise the Gentiles. He circumcised only Israel, but he had the law read to both Israel and the Gentiles. So this is how I hear this verse that is extra loaded. And remember always, it's in opposition to the two preceding verses. So it's not just a nice video with a picture of a shepherd. No, no. It's the linkage between the words that is important here. The allotments for the tribes, and let us remember that tribe in Hebrew is the same word as staff of the shepherd, shebet. That is also impressive. It is not present in this verse, but one may include it in the total picture. And that explains why things went bad when not so much David, but Solomon. David, as you know, was salvaged by God. You know, he wanted to build a house. It was bad, but he said, you know, I'm going to keep you. But in the time of your son, I'm going to show everybody 
the result of your choice of kingship that started already in 1 Samuel 8. You remember how Solomon disturbed the inheritances, the allotments, and unified. In other words, he eliminated the tribal system, as scholars refer to it, you know, but I don't want to use this terminology because I don't want my hearers to be misled and to go back to this classical scholarship that is worth nothing. When he established the kingdom over and above by taxing the people, the reaction of the so-called ten tribes that formed Israel under his son Rehoboam was Back to your tents, O Israel. And I discussed this in my book. It is very impressive. We go back to the setting of shepherdism where every tribe, every family, every clan has their inheritance. And this is how Caleb got Hebron, which is the city of Abraham, as his inheritance. Let us repeat, Caleb is the dog, the foreigner, the impure. So this verse is really loaded, but it is loaded definitely not in English. In English, you have five smooth stones from the brook in his shepherd's back. That is the only word that stresses, if you like, per se shepherd. But the rest of the verse is full with words that really go at the same time in different directions to stress the fact that ultimately had David not won the day from Goliath, the people would have been destroyed. But they were able to keep what God allotted earlier in the book of Joshua. Through this specific action of David, that refused the power of kingship. Remember the armor. It's Saul who was already the king who wanted to put his own armor. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. And whether it's the armor of Saul himself or the armor of David, but the fact that it is that Saul clothed him, in other words, David is a locum tenens of Saul in this battle. Had David accepted this, he would have fought against Goliath as a king would have. But the text turns it around and tells us that it is through the obedience to the law. In my commentary on Jeremiah and in this book also, I stress the importance of the voice. God is a voice. You follow the voice and that is typically shepherdess. The voice is expressed in the five books of the law, and it is this that gives power to the people, not as a rock does, but as a stone. Use pebbles to balance the stakes. If a stake is not all the way in, you put a few pebbles. A pebble. It's very powerful. The hearers, the original hearers, could not have missed that. It's impossible. It's like when hearing the Acts of the Apostle and then hearing the name Jason. I mean, it's impossible for people living in those times not connected with Jason and his Argonauts on the ship Argo looking for the golden fleece and so on. And Luke is presenting the Gospel of Paul as this golden fleece that Jason found. And, you know, it's impossible. And I mean impossible. 
And I would like to end with this refrain of mine that really we have to make the effort not to fall in the trap of cajoling our hearers, but bringing scripture into our times as I hear again and again and again. That's the sacrilege. You have to transpose your hearers and make them the original hearers. And when the people ask me, how is that possible? I say, it is possible, and I try to show it now. But what is more important, it is necessary, and it cannot be otherwise, because your hearers are hearing the letter of Paul to the Corinthians. There is no letter to the people of Minneapolis or of San Diego. It's not there. So how can they be the addressees? They have to hear the text as though on this Sunday, they are the Corinthians. On the following Sunday, they may have to be the Galatians and so on and so forth. And in my commentaries, I show how there are words that are used specifically in certain epistles that correspond precisely to the original setting of the addresses. I showed it time and again. So at the risk of promoting myself, I truly invite my hearers to read attentively my commentaries in the sense of the commentaries I have written, because they are from A to Z unique in their approach. They try to do what I just said and what I try to do in this podcast. Take my hearers back, not only to the shepherd setting, but also to the original Hebrew words of scripture. And again, I showed in the book that Hebrew is a language that was made up on the basis of Semitic languages by made up by the authors. And this explains even more the play on words they do. Consider, and I would like to finish with this, the connection between Wadi, Brook, Nahal, and the inheritance, Nahala, when you have another word for inheritance. And then to use this halak to shave, to connect a smooth stone with the allotment. So it's really very, very, very pregnant, very powerful. But again, we need to give it time take notes, check ourselves on all these things. For instance, I had to look in my concordance here and I discovered that this haluk, I mean, the root is not only there, but this adjective, the way it stands, it's only there and it is definitely intentional. So it's a really central passage, as I would say. I say passage because I'm including verses 38, 39, and 40 in their totality of how things were done. And again, to wrap up and remind everybody that Ezekiel is the father of Scripture or the book of Ezekiel. Again, we hear how at the end of the book of Ezekiel, after he had smashed down all power of all kings, not only of Israel, but also of Tyre and Egypt, he ends up with the shepherd, David, the chosen of God. And Dawid means the beloved, the Dod, the one who is specifically beloved. This is the meaning of the three consonants in Hebrew. It is found very often in the book of Song of Songs. Dod, my beloved. And it behooves us that I repeat here that 
the book of Joshua is not perfect. People assume that people entered and so on. But it didn't work. Joshua had to destroy cities and build new cities, his followers at least. But in the peace of earth at the end of Ezekiel, we have an open land with the allotment. It's very interesting because it tells you the limits of each of the inheritances from this point to that point to that point to that point. You could see it is shaven as with a razor. And then you have only one city whose name is the Lord is there in his Torah, which is reflected in the five stones of David. The connection in these scenes with the vocabulary and the shepherdism and the inheritance that comes from Torah, it's so clear. But then I think of the David of the Psalms, for example, the voice of David is lamenting to God and is asking God. It is a voice of faithfulness to God, but we know what happened to David once he became the king. How do we reconcile this David of the Psalms, who seems like he's trying hard, with the David who left shepherdism to become a king? This is definitely much more complex. The book of Psalms is an enormous book standing, but I would like immediately to say that there is a movement there. Also, I showed in my intro that the book of Psalms is a story. You can't hear only one psalm and jump to the other. You have a movement from David the king to David the new leader as shepherd, paralleling also how God the king is a shepherd. Here comes to mind immediately the two psalms, 78 and 80, in Psalm 78, which is very important, I speak about it often, that parallels Ezekiel, it's a mashal, and it says how God brought the people into the land, and then things didn't work. And the psalm ends with the reference to the tent, and thus to shepherdism. Let's hear it. This is the end of the psalm. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries throughout, who put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Aaron, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from tending the ewes that had young. He brought him to be the shepherd of Jacob, his people of Israel, his inheritance. Now, jump to Psalms. Uh, let me again mention that Psalm 78 and 80 are towards the middle of the book of Psalm, and that for me is important. You hear in 80 that God himself is shepherd. And this connection between 78 and 80, remembering that 78 is very much reflective of Ezekiel, we have what we hear in Ezekiel. It's very stunning, 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou who leadest Joseph like a flock, thou who are enthroned upon the cherubim. It is unbelievable. So the one whom Ezekiel saw in his chapter 1 as seated on the cherubim is a shepherd, essentially. 
And to this shepherd, the prayer is raised three times. Restore us, O God. Without going too much in detail, I think you have the answer to your question. If you hear the book of Psalms as a book and not pick a statement by David in the Psalms and so on. Speaking of that, just because it's important, Psalms is a very dangerous book because it allows you precisely to pick and choose because the scholars gave the impression that it is a set of individual prayers that were put together. And my stress that no, the book of Psalms is one of the biblical books that was put together the way it was put. And you have to hear it the way you hear the gospel of Matthew or the book of Genesis and so on. It's a blessing and a curse. It's like Deuteronomy, the book of Psalms. And the best way to approach it is the approach of the monastic tradition, where the book of Psalms is read while the monastics are seated, because it's very tiring. <laughs> they sit, kathismata, and you hear it. You just hear it in tandem. And it's good. It's good. The book of Psalms, on its own, if one just keep hearing it in the original, one would get the entire Bible, as I intimated in my third volume of Intro to the Old Testament. As I've said many times, Father Paul, the best church school program is one in which the children memorize the Psalms just memorize the Psalms. Obviously, it would be better if they could memorize them in Hebrew. And I know in our program, different teachers have made an effort to introduce the kids to Hebrew, but nothing can substitute just knowledge of the content, especially when one considers what you're saying about how the Psalms function. Yes, because in English, you have also connections, but the child is trained already early to connect words or phrases in their position, the child slowly knows that this is early in the Psalms, this is towards the middle, this is toward the end. The way one connects one Samuel with Joshua, but one always remembers that Joshua came before Samuel, that is very important. And let me say it again, you have a movement with the words. At the beginning, you have more Jerusalem, and then you have more Zion. At the beginning, you have more king related to the earthly king. Later, you have the king who is God, and so on. And thus, you have a movement to just use these words from the earthly Jerusalem to the Jerusalem above to plagiarize Paul in Galatians, which is Zion. And I show that this movement is already in Isaiah chapter 1, where Jerusalem is eliminated and he zeroes in on Zion. These things, how shall I put it, Father Mark? What is important is not the children now when you teach them, is the children 10, 15 years from now when you get them at the age of 20s, let's say, where they choose to be leaders in Sunday school or become deacons or priests and so on, that they are ready to comprehend scriptures when compared to people who are just starting and you have to even guide them to be able to find where the book of Chronicles is. You had to format the disc if the disk is not formatted, you can pour into it the content you are intending to pour. 
I would put it this way, if people who know more by heart the Bible in their own mother tongue are formatted and thus ready to accept a teaching that goes to the original and show them even things they cannot fathom themselves, but then they are ready not to resist, oh, you say this because, no, they are ready to this submission, you submit. But this, again, takes time, and then nowadays people are always in a hurry. They want the solution immediately now. It's not so. My book took a lifetime, practically 60 years, to come up with it the way it is. That's the way it is. The literature is vast to overwhelm you. It is purposely like that when you have four prophets, four gospels, two letters to the Corinthians. It's intended. Thanks very much, Father Paul. It's been a great episode. Thank you very much, Father Paul. Okay, thank you. Thank you, sir. Take care. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.